So in 2 Peter 1, uh, 13 through 21, especially verses 16 through 21, Peter goes back to a moment that he had as he was with the Lord. Dave, can you turn me down just a smidge? As he was with the Lord during the latter part of Jesus's earthly ministry. And Jesus had been telling the, the disciples, he had been hinting at the fact that he was going to pay the price on the cross. And he took them up to an area called Caesarea Philippi, which is in the northern part of Israel at the base of Mount Hermon. There's some wonderful streams in that area. The water comes down off of Mount Hermon, and it's a beautiful area. And uh, he took them up there, and he began to ask them the question, who do people say that I am? And you guys remember there were different responses to that question. And then he turned the question, and he made it very personal. And he said, who do you say that I am? And every person that lives and dies on this planet has to face that question, who do you say that Jesus is? You can say, well, my friend or my pastor or my cousin or my uncle or my grandfather says this about Jesus, but who do you say he is? And Peter, in Matthew 16, as we pick up the account, Matthew 16, verse 17, um, he, gives, he gives this great uh, affirmation or confession, uh, 16, 16 of Matthew. Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Matthew 16, 17, because flesh and blood, that's just another way of saying humanity, did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, Peter got a revelation from heaven. Tonight, we're going to talk about the sureness of Scripture. What is its origin? What is its source? And the source of Scripture is heaven. Scripture is from God. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable. The reason it is so profitable, the reason it is so sharp, the reason it is so good, the reason that it's such full of so much light, the reason that it penetrates so deeply, the reason that it can comfort so profoundly is because its source is God. So I've never thought of it this way, but it's just an interesting connection to make. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father who's in heaven. Scripture comes from heaven. It comes from God. It comes from the triune God. We're going to see in 2 Peter, literally it comes as directed or superintended by the Holy Spirit. But Peter makes this revelation, and then Jesus begins to talk about his church. He says, I say to you that you are Peter, 18, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail or shall not overpower it. The church will stand the test of time, and it's been about 2,000 years since this was said by Jesus, and the church has not uh, given in to the, actually the gates are really defensive, so it's been able to rush the gates of Hades, and the gates of Hades have not prevailed, have not stopped the church, because the church's foundation is not man, but God. And the Bible's origin is not man, but God. The Bible comes from God. Now, some of you may be asking the question, but how? Because it seems to be written by man because you have the book of Matthew or you have 1 Peter or you have 2 Peter. Tonight, we're going to answer that question. How does inspiration work? What is this 
term inspiration that we use. How can it be God's word yet authored by men? We'll tackle some of those questions. But the reason that the church has stood the test of time and really rushed the gates of Hades is because there is no other foundation that could be laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the church. He is the foundation, the head of the church. We are his body. Now, after this, Jesus exhorts and he tells them they need to follow him. And he says, it's going to cost you a lot. I'm summarizing the verses to get to where we need to be tonight. In verse 27, he says, The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of, the, some of those who are standing here who shall not taste death until they see the, king, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Pastor Michael needs reading glasses. I, I, I'm fighting it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to wear them at the pulpit. Confession, but I'm, I'm coming closer and closer. But anyway, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And I thank you all for those of you who reached out with your readers. Thank you. My wife's been doing that for me, and it's, it's a blessing. I, I, I'm, I'm almost to the point where I'm willing to do it publicly. But anyway, so he took with him Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of the twelve, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. By the time this rolls around, by the way, Moses has been dead about 1,500 years. But God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And just because you die physically, it doesn't mean your life is over. I was listening to Greg Laurie, and he was talking with uh, the lead singer of Mercy Me. And they've both lost uh, loved ones. Greg lost his son in that car accident on the 91. And uh, the head singer, the lead singer of Mercy Me grew up in a home where his dad was abusive. And then, as I understand the story, his dad ended up having a conversion and coming to Christ. And uh, I think his first name is Bart, uh, who's the lead singer of Mercy Me, has written a book about his dad's story and that conversion and all of that. And he said, Greg, you said something, and I don't know if it came from you, but it's something that stuck with me. He said, I've shared it with more people than I could tell you. And it's this, when you lose a loved one in Christ, there's more time ahead for you to spend with them than what's behind you pretty awesome thought, isn't it? Because eternity is a long time. And the millennial, millennial reign of Jesus Christ is a thousand years. And that's just the beginning. There's more time ahead than there is behind us. And so here's Moses and Elijah. They appear, appear on the mountain. They're very much alive. They were talking with Jesus. And Luke tells us they were talking about his departure. By the way, the transfiguration is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not in John, but in all three of the synoptic gospels, as they're called. And they were talking, and Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. How did Peter know it was Moses and Elijah? Because I think this is a foretaste of the kingdom and we will know then, even as we are known, without the need for mixer name tags. Praise the Lord. 
I do not believe they had mixer name tags on. Hello, my name is Moses. Hello, my name is Elijah. I think when we get to heaven, we will know even as we are known. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that. Tells us that. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know even as I am known. This is the beauty of what's ahead of us. We will know people on a much deeper level. Some people are concerned. Will I know my grandpa, my grandma, my friend, even my spouse on the other side? The answer is yes, probably more deeply than you ever did before. And I think that's awesome news for all of us. And so it says, while he was still speaking, verse 5, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were much afraid. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, arise, do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. You see, what had happened is Moses, who represents the law, Elijah, who represents the prophets, began to depart one of the gospels says they began to move away. And I don't know if we'll get to see this in the media room of heaven one day, how they were moving away and what it looked like. But they were departing because the law and the prophets go into the background because the law and the prophets speak of who? Of Jesus Christ. They all point to him and he was left there alone. You see, Scripture, the law, the prophets, the Psalms all point to the coming Messiah. Jesus said, you, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but these are, the, these are they that testify of me. Yet you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life, John 5, 39. See, life is not found in the Bible. Life is found in the son of the Bible. You, you can read the Bible and not be saved. You must be born again. By virtue of reading God's word, of course, many, many people are born again, but you have to have an experience where you're spiritually born again. And so this is the scene to which Peter will appeal in 2 Peter as he talks about the divine source of Scripture. But I want to take you to one more, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to set this up. John 21. So Jesus is risen from the dead, and you all know that Peter had his bumble where he denied the Lord three times, Jesus had told him it was going to happen. Peter was overconfident. He was sleeping when he should have been praying. He was tired. They were weary. And John 21 tells us about Peter's, you could call it recommissioning. They're uh, at the seashore. John 21. And uh, this is the account of, I think it's the third post-resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is John 21, 14. Now, the third, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples, 21:14 of John, after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And of course, Peter denied the Lord three times around a similar firelight. 
He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Now keep reading. Truly I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, by the way, this means Peter knew that he would grow old. Peter had a word from the Lord. Do you know when Herod threw Peter in prison and he was supposed to die the next day? Peter slept like a baby. It's recorded in the book of Acts. Do you know why Peter slept like a baby? Because he knew he wasn't going to die. Jesus said he was going to grow old. And I was reading one commentary that believes that Peter is in his 70s at this point. Peter knew that he would grow old, and Jesus made a prophecy. He said, you're going to grow old, and you will stretch out your hands, middle of 18, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. For the rest of Peter's life, let's say that Peter had another 40 years to live. I don't know exactly how much time he had. We do know Peter died around 68 or a little bit, you know, somewhere in there at, uh, under the hands of uh, Caesar Nero. He spent the rest of his life not forgetting this moment. Three times the Lord said to Peter, take care of my people. Shepherd my sheep. Tend my flock. Now, as you turn over to 2 Peter, this is exactly what Peter is doing. He is shepherding God's sheep. What's the main job of a shepherd? Well, Peter had three, three and a half years with the good shepherd, so he learned quite a bit about what it means to be a good shepherd. And one of Jesus' primary modes of shepherding was teaching. Jesus was the master teacher. Jesus also touched people. He healed people. He loved people. He exhorted. He did all of those things. But his primary thing, if you go, go back and read the Gospels, you'll see over and over it will say, and Jesus taught them there. And he taught this and he taught that. So Peter has become a shepherd. And he says these words in one more, 1 Peter 5, before we get to the actual text. 1 Peter 5, 1. Therefore, 1 Peter 5, 1, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now keep going to your right to 2 Peter 1. When Peter writes 2 Peter, do you remember what the main occasion is, the emphasis of the writing, what's he trying to accomplish? Protect the church against what? False teaching. He's being a shepherd. Because a shepherd feeds the flock, protects the flock from wolves in sheep's clothing, and a pastor's main job, it's not the only job he has, but one of his main jobs is to protect, equip the, the sheep and protect them by virtue of teaching the truth. To strengthen them. To bring them closer to the chief shepherd. And so Peter says in 2 Peter 1.13, as we pick up from last time, 
And I consider it right, or the word could be righteous. As long as I am in this earthly tent or dwelling, the, the Greek word is skenoma. It's literally a tabernacle, a temporary tent or a tent of a nomad to stir, up, stir you up by way of reminder. Peter says, as long as I'm in the tent, I'm in the reminding business. And Peter's now probably in his 70s. And I've watched some pastors like Dr. Charles Stanley, for example, and others we can think of who, I don't know, is Charles Stanley almost 90 now? That guy has been preaching the word for a long time. And sometimes I honestly look in the mirror and say, I wonder how long I'm going to do this. I have been doing this for 20 years. It's almost hard to imagine. Some of you should be shaking your head. No, Pastor Michael, it can't be. You look like you're 30. You guys should be saying that right now. And you think, you know, Lord, how long am I supposed to teach your word? And the answer is, you are to be faithful until I tell you otherwise. Follow me. Not only will I make you a fisher of men, Peter was told early in Jesus' ministry, but I will make you a shepherd of sheep. I will make you a fisher of men. I will make you a shepherd of sheep. That's the call of the church. We fish for men and women that they might get saved and then we shepherd them and we try to take care of them to keep them from falling into sin. Here's the two primary issues with sheep once you get saved. There's always the danger of falling back into sin and there's always the danger of falling into false teaching. The job of a shepherd is to help sheep not fall back into sin and not fall into false teaching. And so we are in the reminding business. And Peter says, as long as I'm in this tent, and this tent's gotten a little older now, Peter might say, I'm not as strong as I used to be. But until I leave the tent and go to be with the Lord, I'm going to continue to remind you, even though, as he said earlier, I know you know these things. Because Peter knew what it was like to fail. Peter knew what it was like to be someone who had confessed Christ and in the next moment, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. Peter knew what it was like to say, Lord, even though all forsake you, I will never. And the same night, say he didn't even know the Lord three times and begin to call down curses. Peter knew what it was like to be asleep when he should have been awake. And it's interesting that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they were sleeping instead of praying, and Jesus said, my soul is grieved, he took the same three, Peter, James, and John. He went about a stone's throw away from them. He began to be grieved. He began to fall on the ground and ask the Father to let the cup pass from him. And when he went back to the sleeping apostles, he said to Peter, not to John, not to James, to Peter, the author of our letter, couldn't you stay awake for one hour? You said you were going to be so strong, Peter, and you can't even stay awake. This is our humanity. This is our sheepiness. <laughs> we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Can you feel it sometimes? And just when you feel like you have arrived and you got this Christian thing down and you feel like you're pretty well anchored, then it just doesn't take much, right? That's why we need to continually be rooted and grounded in the things of God. 
Peter says, I'm, I know, knowing that, verse 14, the laying aside of my earthly dwelling, same word here, earthly tent, tabernacle, is imminent. The putting off of my body will be soon ESV. And also, our, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. When did Peter know that he was going to die? Well, he was given the prophecy in John 21 that he was going to die when he was old. And the way that he was going to die, he would stretch out his hands, which many believe is a reference to crucifixion. And I've told you about the tradition that Peter was crucified and that upside down. And that's debated whether or not that tradition is correct, but is from one of the early fathers. And so Peter says, I'm getting ready to fold up the tent just as Jesus has told me. And maybe it was confirmed to Peter when he was praying one night, or maybe the Holy Spirit said, it's, your death is imminent, so get your affairs in order, or finish up the writing, or whatever. And so he, the tent was going to be folded up, and Peter was going to leave. Peter was going to make a departure. Look at verse 15. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, see the word departure there? It's literally the Greek word exodus, but it's spelled E-X-O, D-O-S, exodos. You may be able to call these things to mind. I'm, I'm being diligent. The Lord's told me soon I'll be folding up the tent. And he calls death my what? Departure, my exodus. Now, if you think of this, the word exodus, you recall that when the children of Israel were in Egypt all that time, 400 years, and they were freed by the mighty hand of God. That was called the Exodus. We have a book called the book of Exodus. And by the way, Exodus simply means exit or departure. For the Christian, death is not the end. Death is a departure. The only question you got to answer is where are you going? Do you know how, if you go to the airport, they have those boards with arrivals and departures? And you look, you know, at arrival and departure times on those screens and you try to see if your flight's on time or if you're going to pick up somebody that, you know, it's their, their flight's coming in on time. Arrivals and departures. The only thing you really got to know is where you're going. Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. Have I been so long with you that you don't know me? Three and a half years we've been together. The night before he dies, John 14. Have I been so long with you that you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I'm the way to my Father's house. Death is a departure. Paul said in Philippians 1, you can write down verses 21 through 23. For me, to me, to live is Christ... And to die is what? Is gain. How many of you have that verse on your refrigerator? Nobody? <laughs> For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because if death is a departure, if death is an exodus, exodus has the idea of being freed from bondage. Bondage to what? A world cursed, a world filled with sin and death. 
Now, none of us have a death wish, of course. We all want to see the Lord's face. We all want to end up in heaven, but we're not trying to rush things along. Amen? It's like the pastor who stood at the pulpit and asked the congregation, how many of you want to go to heaven? And everybody raised their hand, except this little boy. And he saw the little boy in the hallway, and he said, son, why didn't you raise your hand when I said, do you want to go to heaven? He said, I thought you were taking people now, pastor. I'm I'm not ready to jump on that bus just yet. When Paul describes it, he says to depart and be with Christ is far better. He uses the same imagery in 2 Corinthians 5. I won't take you there because I think you're all familiar with it. But in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about this tent and how in the tent we groan and so forth and how we have a house not made with hands, which is eternal in the heavens. But in this house we groan. We're longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. What did Moses and Elijah look like to Peter, James, and John? I don't know. Because it was before the resurrection, so you could say in some way they were in the intermediate state. They were with the Lord. They were recognizable. What did they look like? Did they have a body? If so, were they young? Were they (laughs) middle-aged? You know, these are questions that we don't have all the answers to. But they were recognizable, and they were there with Jesus and they were all in glory. And that's, that's where Peter's going, is he's going to talk about this, this meeting that they actually discussed Jesus' departure, Luke 9.31, which is a parallel account of the transfiguration as they were up on the mountain. That's what they were talking about. Jesus is literally his exodus, which could point to his ascension or just him going back to heaven. Now, the word for is a, causal term linking the passage. So the word for links back to what Peter just said, verse 16, and he goes into now a defense of the origin of the Bible. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales. The New King James says cunningly devised. The uh, NIV says cleverly invented stories the ESV calls them myths because the Greek word is muthos. When we made known to you the power, that's the Greek word dunamis, and coming, Greek word parousia, of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We, says Peter, did not follow made-up myths when we told you about Jesus Christ. We did not follow Invented stories. That is not what the Bible is about. There's Greek mythology. There's Roman mythology. There's things from Egypt and things from Babylon. There's the mystery religions. There's all of this stuff about gods and goddesses. There's the occult. There's the cults. But there's one Bible. And the Bible tells you about God, the triune God, and his plan of redemption for mankind. And so Peter says, look, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what does Peter say? We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The word majesty speaks of glory and splendor. Cleverly devised could have the idea of subtle, sophisticated, well-packaged lies. Do you know how many well-packaged lies are out there? 
It wasn't long ago we did the first 633 I shared with you on Scientology. Scientology is a well-packaged lie. Until you get to OT8, and OT8 is Operating Thetan 8, Level 8, where you find out that you just have to redo the whole thing over again and just to give them another couple million dollars. That's it. If you've been watching the Leah Remini special, that's what they found out at OT8. You get to do it all over again. <laughs> get your checkbook out. Get your credit card out. A well-packaged lie promising what? You could be in control. You can do better at business. You can be comfortable talking with people. You can make friends easier. You could do this. There's a scientific remedy for everything. Don't you know? You're an operating Phaeton. Or you will be. There's a little God in you. You just have to figure out, you know, who you are. Go up this levels. Go up this chart. And then you get to the top of the chart. And all you find out is you have empty pockets and somebody else is driving some nice automobiles. <laughs> That's how the devil works. Peter says, that's not the game we were playing. You don't need to bother with myths. You have God's word. When we talk on Sunday, uh, part of what came up in some of the backdrop of Wendy's story, Wendy will be up here to share a little bit, is the book The Secret. How many of you remember the, when the book The Secret came out? So The Secret... The, the essence of the book, and it was being pushed by Oprah Winfrey, is that you just need to speak to the universe and the universe will give you back what you speak. So you just say to the universe, whoever's out there in the universe, whoever the universe may be, oh, universe, I want you to see my wallet right now. My wallet has a multitude of receipts, but very little cash. I now speak into my wallet, <laughs> right? Or, here was one of the things. You could speak to the universe after you eat that triple cheeseburger. And you could say something like this. Maybe you got to talk to the burger. You are not going to cause me to gain any weight. Now, I'm sorry, but th this was it. So I'm going to eat this cheeseburger and universe. No wait, it's going on me. I'm sorry. That's a joke. That's, that's, that book was flying off the shelves, and that's what that book taught. That's very simplified, but that's it. Words of power. You speak your own reality. Your words control your reality. So you put the words out there, and you get to create your reality, and that's just a big, fat lie. It's a lie. Peter says, we didn't do that. The time will come when they won't endure sound doctrine, 2 Timothy 4.3, what Paul wrote at the end of his life. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths or fables. Same Greek word, same lie, same source, repackaged over and over and over again. And the books fly off the shelves. You know Why? Because I can get a lot out of it if there's a secret and I get to speak to the universe and that controls my pocketbook and my shape and I can control my own reality, then sure, surely I'm going to buy that book. But it's a lie. 
Peter says, that's, that's not what we preach to you guys. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When he received 17, honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Now he's referring, as we're going to see, to the Mount of Transfiguration. Probably happened on Mount Hermon. He received honor and glory from who? God the Father. An utterance was made. That came from the majestic glory or from heaven. And the Father said of the Son, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now Peter left off something. You guys remember what else God said there? He said, listen to him. And Peter was talking right when God said that. I don't know if Peter just left that out by grace. I don't think so. All scriptures inspired by God, right? God has his reasons. There's only one other place that God the Father spoke these words about his son. What was the other place? His baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So I, I was listening to a message I'd given four years ago, five years ago, from Luke 9 on the Transfiguration. And I heard a coach say that he was meeting with a Jewish friend who was not a Christian. And they were, he was talking about what he had learned in the New Testament about how God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased twice, baptism and Mount of Transfiguration. And he said one of the things that he gleaned out of it as a father and a coach is to publicly tell his son or son's how much he loves them. And of course, that would apply to daughters as well. But this, in this case, it's a son. And he said, what do you think of that? He just said that to his Jewish friend at lunch. Like, what do you think of that? And his Jewish friend began to break down and cry. And he didn't know why he was crying. And when he got himself together, his Jewish friend said to him, do you know that when we do a bar mitzvah, the last thing that the father of the boy that has come of age says to him is, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And he didn't have any knowledge of the New Testament. And he broke down in tears. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. I think it's important for fathers and mothers to publicly express their love and that they're proud of their children. And I'm one of those dads and I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I have three. I have Shane, Nathan, and James, two of which are here tonight. James is off at Biola. And you are my beloved sons in whom I am well pleased. Do I think that's the immediate context? No. <laughs> Do I think it's a good application? Yep. Because they need to know that you love them and you're proud of them. And so... Here's the message that came. They were enveloped in this glory cloud. It overshadowed them like the shadowing Shekinah glory of the tabernacle. And the father confirmed his son. Where was his son headed? To the cross. I think his son, Jesus the son, who was 100% human, needed this. He needed maybe affirmation, encouragement from his father. And I think the apostles needed to hear this because they had just, Peter had just confessed, you are the son of God, you are the 
the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then the Father confirmed it from heaven. How do you like that? Can you imagine what kind of light and power and glory was going on up there? Have you ever read the Exodus account of Mount Sinai when God appears and he is like a blazing fire? That's why they're on their faces, by the way. They got a close-up glimpse of God the Father, God the Son. I'm sure the Holy Spirit's there as well. And Moses and Elijah on fire too, in some respect. And what do you think it's a foretaste of? The coming kingdom. Old Testament saints are there. New Testament apostles are there. And God is there. And it's a foretaste of glory. We will know even as we are known. We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven, 18, when we were with him on the holy or sacred mountain. And so we have the prophetic word, 19, made more sure. The prophetic word confirmed, New King James, to which you do well to pay attention to as, lamp, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Just If you look at the end of verse 18, you can see it's the second occasion on the holy mountain, not at the Jordan River, where this took place. So Peter's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, in the ESV, it renders this way, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word. What is sure in your life tonight? What can you count on? Who can you count on? What... When you sleep at night and you put your head on the pillow, what are you really sure about? Stock market? I was sure a week ago. (laughs) Can I get a witness? (laughs) I wanted to see my 401k statement a week ago. And then I turned on the news. Uh Uh-oh, click, 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 click. (laughs) Not so sure. And then there's people, some people I was pretty sure about. And then (laughs) I became not so sure. Can I get a witness? (laughs) All right, you don't have to say it out loud. Don't look at anybody right now. (laughs) What are you sure of? We go to the doctor, we get a health report, we, we hear news. Just not sure. A lot of people say that. You ask them questions. I'm not sure. Do you know how many people will answer the question tonight about their eternity with these words? I'm just not sure. Really? You might want to make sure before you fold up the tent. Amen? This is not an area to not be sure. Now, do your investigations, do your homework, ask your questions, beat on the doors you got to beat on, but make sure you know the Lord. Now, what's Peter saying? Two major views. Was this experience confirmation of the truth of God's word, testifying to Jesus, following the question, who do you say that I am? In other words, was the Mount of Transfiguration confirming the Old Testament prophets. That's one view. Or is Peter saying we have something more sure than this experience of Jesus' transfiguration and the Father's affirming voice? Well, 
Scholars have wrestled with this because they say, how could you have anything more sure than the father confirming his son up on the holy mountain with Moses and Elijah to boot? Could it get any better than that? Is Peter actually saying that the Bible is more sure than that experience? Not necessarily. That experience is recorded in Scripture. Maybe what Peter is saying is this. Maybe Peter is saying the Word of God is more certain than my experience as a man. I could tell you about experiences I've had with God and you could tell me, right? But Sometimes if you told me a story, I could say, man, that sounds incredible. That's fantastic. That's awesome. But a part of me might say, <laughs> I'm not sure. Right? How many of you are skeptical? Are you naturally skeptical? When we did the 633 and I was dealing with JT's case of demon possession, if you haven't heard that story, get the, the CD. I went into that house skeptical, even though I was told information that told me that there was probably an evil presence that we were dealing with. But my first uh, natural inclination was to say, maybe there's a natural explanation until the supernatural showed up. <laughs> and then I went, oh. But I could tell you about my experience and you, some of you, maybe even before that night, maybe even now, Maybe you're thinking, I'm not sure. But one thing I'm sure about, when I open my Bible, it's God's Word. And I'm sure. And over and over again, God says stuff like this. Psalm 138, verse 2. I will bow toward thy holy temple, give thanks to thy name for thy loving kindness and thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word according to all thy name. Look up at the wall. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth. In Isaiah 55, God says in verse 11, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. In Isaiah 66, 2, God says, To him who is humble and contrite of spirit, this is the one to whom I will look, and him who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. Jeremiah 1, 12, Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. In John 5, 24, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he shall not come into judgment. He is crossed over from death to life. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you shall know the truth. Abide in my word. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Make you free. Take a look at 1 Peter. Flip back just a few pages. 1 Peter 2. We're winding down, but I want you to see something that Peter said in his first letter. 1 Peter 2. I'm sorry, 1 Peter 1, verse 22. Since you, 1 Peter 1, 22, have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and abiding, what's your Bible say? Word of God. 1 Peter 1, 24, for all flesh is like grass, 
All its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, put these things aside. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. See, Peter says, the word is sure. It, it's, it's a sure foundation. Why is it more sure, says one writer? Well, because it's wider in its range, more varied in coming from many and bringing a more intense personal conviction than the testimony of a single fact or even a single witness. It's penned by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, written on three different continents with one single message. God's redemptive plan for mankind. It's God's sure word. And Peter is exhorting the church to stay true to God's word because they're going to deal with false teachers. And one of the things that the false teachers were denying was the second coming of Jesus. And mockers, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, saying, Where is the promise of his coming? That's 2 Peter 3. In 2 Peter 2, we're about to head. Peter will lay out what the false teachers are doing. He's shepherding the church until he folds up the tent. And he's starting with the foundation. He's saying, look, we've got the word of God. This is how we measure things. And you would do well, 2 Peter 2, 19. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. You will do well if you pay attention, 2 Peter 2, 19, to the lamp of God's word. For your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. Into the murky, dark world came the glorious light of Jesus. And he said, I'm the light of the world. He's the morning star. By the way, that means light bringer. Morning star literally means light bringer or light bearer. You can look at Revelation twenty two sixteen, 16, where Jesus is the bright and morning star. He shines into dead hearts, dark hearts. And what does he bring? Illumination. The dawning of a new day. Glory. How many of you have had it happen? All of a sudden, the light of God's word shined like a searchlight and you just woke up. He went, wow. Didn't see that before. Didn't sing things like this before because you were born again to a living hope. And so know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. The word, uh, a matter of, genetai in Greek, means comes into being or originates or arises. It's not from human will, as we'll see in verse 21. It's not a matter of human will. Interpretation may be kind of a bad translation because the Greek word really means an unloosing, an unfolding or disclosing. It's not how you interpret the Bible. This is more about the source of the Bible, as we'll see in verse 21. The Greek word for interpretation has the idea of loosing or the loosing of truth or the untying of something. The source of the Bible is what is being talked about. 
The point of these verses is, in fact, not the interpretation of Scripture, which the false teachers obviously were off on, but the primary meaning is the origin of Scripture. Not what Scripture means, but what Scripture is, close quote. Peter was not prohibiting the private study of the Bible, as some religious groups have taught that only spiritual leaders, quote-unquote, may interpret Scripture, and they have used this verse as their defense. Peter was not writing primarily about the interpretation of Scripture, please hear this well, but the origin of Scripture. And this is all borne out by verse 21. For no prophecy, and you could say prophecy of Scripture, was ever made by what? An act of human will. Not one scripture is the product of human will. So when your friends or skeptics say to you, the Bible's just from man, they all made it up. They came together and cut together a story. Yeah, that's why Peter's denying the Lord three times. That, that's why they're falling on their faces left and right, wallowing in unbelief. Look, if I wrote the story just to write the story, I would make myself look good. But that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is full of warts and all. How many of you are painfully trucking through 2 Samuel with us on Sunday mornings? Oh, some of you want the book to be over, I know. Because you're saying, how much more bad stuff can happen to David? More. <laughs> I'm not going, I'm not coming on Sunday. I'm going somewhere else. All right, you can do that, I guess. But men were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. All scripture is inspired by God. It's the product ultimately of God through human channels. Let me just read a little bit from one author. He says, The prophets, in fact, sometimes wrote what they could not fully understand, but were nonetheless faithful to write what God revealed to them. They were moved by the Spirit. Grammatically, this means they were continually carried or borne along by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit thus is the divine author and originator and producer of the Scriptures. In the Old Testament alone, the human writers refer to their writings as the words of God over 3,800 times. Though the human writers of Scripture were active rather than passive in the process of writing Scripture, God the Holy Spirit superintended them so that using their own individual personalities, thought processes, and vocabulary, they composed and recorded without error the exact words of God God wanted written. The original copies of the Scriptures are therefore inspired, i.e. God-breathed, inerrant and without error. Peter defined the process of inspiration which created an inerrant original text, moved along by the Holy Spirit as the idea of wind blowing into the sails of a ship to move it along. They were moved along. In John 14, 26, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will bring things to your remembrance. And a suggested definition by Geisler and Nix in a general introduction to the Bible, they say, inspiration is that mysterious process by which divine causality work through the human prophets without destroying their individual personalities and styles to produce divinely authoritative and inerrant writings. In other words, the Bible was a flawless book 
in the original autographs, close quote. It's divine and human. Some have compared it, and you can take this by way of analogy, to Jesus, who was both divine and human. That's maybe not the perfect analogy, but you get it. It's a divine and human uh, process, but the divine is pushing it along. And thus you have your Bible. What do you have that's sure in your life? Do you know how many people have attacked this book over the last two millennia? The Age of Enlightenment, naturalism, all these isms that came along. They, they, God is dead, this or that. The Enlightenment has come. Man doesn't need God. Oh yeah, take a look around. How well are we doing without him? And in the 1960s, this country, with a new wave of attack of liberalism and skepticism and you name it, started saying, ah, let's not use the Bible in schools anymore. Ah, let's not pray in schools anymore. Ah, let's not have, you know, the Christian thing in the public square anymore. And it's been about 50 years And here we are. And there are voices in the culture in America now saying, we better get God back into these places we kicked him out of. Because if we don't, we're on a collision course with a dead-end street. But we have a sure word. God's word is sure. Father, we thank you so much that we have our Bibles and we thank you so much that It is the word of God, breathed out by God. It's a divine product through a human instrument. And it's a beautiful thing, the way that you've allowed us as humans to be part of this process by which revelation would come to the world. And Peter says we have a sure word. With all that Peter experienced with the Lord, it's amazing that he points us back to the scriptures. But... That's indeed what he does. And we're so grateful for the record that Peter recorded, divinely inspired, of this epistle, this experience, this man that was changed forever by the power of God, this man who walked with Jesus and now is with Jesus. And we're so grateful for the record of Scripture, and we're so grateful for how it's changed our hearts. Now, if you're here tonight and you've not been born again to that living hope, but maybe something has jumped off the page tonight or the Holy Spirit has just shown you the truth of Jesus and you want to know him. It's a very simple step, but it's, it's a major step and you've got to take it for yourself. You've really got to answer the question, who do you say Jesus is? And if you can say, I believe Jesus is the son of the living God. I believe he's God the son. I believe he came to this world as God in human flesh. I believe he died on that cross for me. I believe he lived a perfect life for me. I believe he rose from the dead for me and intercedes for me. Then you've taken the step that the Bible says to become a Christian. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you keep your head and heart bowed and would you just open your heart to hope tonight? 
What do you have that you can count on? If you have some people in your life you can count on, that's a blessing. But God wants you to make him your sure foundation. You might ask, well, how do I do that? Something very simple. Lord Jesus, just pray it if it's you right now. Come into my life. Thank you that you're willing to come to this earth for me. Suffer and die in my place. Pray it right now if it's you. You rose from the dead as you promised. And you've given us hope beyond this life. And during this life, we can have abundant life. And I thank you. I turn from my sin. I ask you to forgive me of it. And I trust in you as my Lord and my Savior. Father, for those who are crying out tonight, for those who have made a first-time commitment, recommitted their lives, for believers who just need encouragement to hang on with hope, to persevere, to find strength in you and your word, I pray that you'd bless them, strengthen them in every area they needed in Jesus' name. Amen.